Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Nonprofit View, a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard and Holt. I'm a consultant to nonprofits and I specialize in community and organizational development. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find nonprofit you on Facebook and on Twitter, and I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags NonprofitU or CCCSI. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit underscore you. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account, You'll find a link to open the account on the page for this episode. And you can also email me questions at consulting at ValerieFLeonard.com. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 20-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. Today's topic is Cook County Commission on Social Innovation Update. We'll talk about the work the Cook County Commission on Social Innovation is doing to leverage public and private investment to drive social change. And again, we encourage you to call in with questions at about the 20-minute mark, perhaps the 30-minute mark. You can start posting in the chat room and emailing questions now. Again, my email address is consulting at ValerieFLeonard.com. And if you want to participate in the live chat, you must open an account, and the link is found on the episode page. Again, the call-in number is 347-884-8121. Nonprofit and community development professionals as well as policymakers are especially encouraged to call in and share your stories and strategies. Today's guest is Attorney Mark J. Lane. Mark is a nationally recognized business and tax attorney and financial advisor. He practices law at the law offices of Mark J. Lane, PC, in Chicago. By appointment of then-Illinois Governor Pat Quinn, he chaired the state's task force on social innovation, entrepreneurship, and enterprise, and by appointment of Cook County Commissioner Jesus Chuy Garcia, he now serves as Vice Chairperson of the Cook County Commission on Social Innovation. He is also the Chairman of the Chicago Chapter of the Social Enterprise Alliance. He's an innovator in helping corporations, social enterprises, foundations, investors, lenders, and philanthropists leverage capital to maximize financial results while driving positive social change. Mark has taught both entrepreneurial finance and social enterprise at Northwestern University School of Law. And without further ado, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. And before we get started, uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that it's a pleasure to be with you, Valerie, and a privilege to serve with you on the Cook County Commission on Social Innovation. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you, thank you. And you know what, I say this not just because I was appointed to the commission, but I think you and the chairman, who is Commissioner Garcia, you've done a wonderful job of you know, creating a divorce. I'm sorry, not a divorce. Hmm, that's Freudian, I guess. <laughs> uh, not for me. I don't know why I would say that. I'm a single person, but at any rate, you have a diverse... <laughs> A very diverse group of people, you know, really smart people, I think, that come from different walks of life, as we were discussing, um, from a social background as well as economic background, education, as well as age. So I think you guys have done a wonderful, wonderful job of selecting folks. 
And, well, thanks, Valerie. The, you know, the effort really was to have uh, representation of all of the economic sectors that are relevant as well mm -hmm. as uh, the commission needs to look something like the county it represents. So that was uh, mm -hmm. by design, and I think we did uh, do a pretty good job of achieving that end. Yes. And before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about the commission and how it got started? Yeah, well, you were you were gracious to mention that I previously had served as uh, Governor Quinn's chair of the state's task force on social innovation, entrepreneurship, and enterprise. Uh, that was a term-limited effort. Uh, I uh, wrote the law creating the task force, and Governor Quinn asked me to chair it and populate it and develop its agenda. And I found during that process that uh, we were able to incubate significant uh, social policy recommendations for the governor and the General Assembly, and uh, those results continue to uh, derive uh, impact socially the entire state, I think, in a very beneficial way. So, for example, uh, the state's first pay-for-success or social impact bond was incubated uh, in that task force with the help of a pro bono team from the Kennedy School at Harvard that I recruited. And that initiative is dealing with kids who are dually involved, those in both the criminal justice and the child welfare systems, and trying to improve their outcomes. So that was you know, kind of the predicate for the Cook County Commission. And uh, similarly, I wrote the law creating that commission, which, again, is looking at um, the economic challenges facing the people who live in Cook County uh, and seeking to develop uh, knowledge-based, data-driven solutions to social problems that uh, are the result of the many faces of poverty, unemployment, underemployment, mm -hmm. public health, education, and the like. So here we have now at the county level a permanent agency uh, which is going to uh, make targeted recommendations of a socially impactful nature to the Cook County Board and its departments and agencies. And uh, we're a little over a year old now, and uh, I think mm -hmm. you can attest to the fact that we've done some pretty important stuff and have in our sites other things that I think will have legs and uh, improve the lives of the mm -hmm. people of the county. Yes, yes, yes. And I always tease you, and I say this, you know, without exaggeration, this is one of the few commissions that I know about where people are actually doing hands-on work. It's not, it's not really much of the staff, even though we do have staff supporting us, but, you know, the folks on the commission are really doing much of the legwork, you know, for the work that we do. And, and I really appreciate, you know, the fact that you structured it that way. Well, you know, one of the lessons I learned at the state task force was you have to get the right people on board and you have to make sure that they're going to have the bandwidth to contribute in a meaningful way. What I didn't want to have happen was to draft a report that gathers dust on a shelf. I wanted to make sure we had people with sufficient expertise and passion so collectively we could make a difference. And I think uh, that's already in evidence, and I'm proud that that's the case. Okay. So when you were here the last time, you shared with us the definition of social innovation and social entrepreneurship, how they're similar and how that, you know, how they're different. And I'm just thinking, you know, for our listening audience this time around, it may still be appropriate because I think we use those terms interchangeably and sometimes we get a little confused. So can you share with us one more time um, you know, the difference is just to make sure that we're all on the same page for this show. Well, I'll, I'll happy, happily share with you uh, the way I think about each of those terms and concepts. So to me, um, social innovation is the process of developing and deploying effective solutions to challenging and often systemic social and environmental issues uh, in support of social progress. Uh, it's not the prerogative or domain of any organizational form or legal structure, often requiring uh, action that's collaborative of constituents across mm -hmm. government, business, and the nonprofit world, whereas social entrepreneurship or indeed social enterprise is the use of um, business strategies by startup companies and other entrepreneurs to develop, fund, implement, and scale 
solutions to social, cultural, or environmental issues. Uh, this can be applied by a variety of organizations with different sizes, aims, and beliefs. And here in Illinois, mm-hmm. we have the benefit of both low-profit limited liability companies and benefit corporations, both enacted by statute at the state level, um, but also other business forms that are really pursuing market-based solutions to social problems. So that's how I would differentiate the two. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then when we look at some of the recent work that the Cook County Commission on Social Innovation has done, um, I'm very proud that we passed a solution to conduct a feasibility study on Crossrail Chicago. You want to share with us, you know, a little, you know, a few of the details on the resolution and tell us how it came about. Sure. So, um this really has to do with uh, the transportation desert in Cook County, where people who live in the Southland, that is the south side of Chicago and the southern suburbs, people who live on the west side of Chicago, these areas tend to be job poor, and they have difficulty mm-hmm. uh, getting to job-rich areas within the county and beyond. For example, uh, the northwest suburbs where you'll find significant light manufacturing and assembly opportunities. So we wanted to kind of make it easier for those people to uh, get to those jobs so those jobs now become a reality uh, for them. So the commission passed a resolution on December 15th, 2016, calling on the county board to study the possibility of creating a unified countywide transportation network to allow easier access uh, to jobs in northwest Cook County for residents of South Cook County. And the problem, of course, has historically been that the various transportation agencies are siloed. They each have their own mandate, Mm -hmm. their own budget, their own turf. And uh, we want to make sure that they can all work collaboratively to ensure that the county's residents are being well served. So the county board unanimously accepted the commission's recommendations in February of 2017. Uh, They budgeted, I believe it was $500,000 for a study which the Cook County Department of Highways expects to complete before the end of the year. And uh, all of us on the commission hope and believe that the steps that follow will meaningfully bring down the region's unemployment rates, particularly in that transportation desert I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Wow. And emphasis on the fact that they're trying to get this done by the end of the year. Imagine that, a feasibility study done by a governmental agency. Well, you know, time, the truth is, as to, as, as to all these social problems, Valerie, time is our enemy. People are suffering. And, you know, by delaying things, uh, people just hurt for that much longer. So it's it, all of us mm-hmm. on the commission are, are doing everything we can to accelerate the progress of the commission and its impact, and that mm-hmm. gets built into the DNA of each and every resolution or ordinance we consider. And, you know, I think this is really timely because, you know, the city of Gary, you know, they're focusing on their transportation and they're looking at the South Shore line. So I, I see significant synergies between what we're doing here in Cook County and what Gary is doing, and it can only, you know, be good for the Midwest. I think that's exactly right. Okay, so I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to Nonprofit U, and we're speaking with Attorney Mark J. Lane. He's the Vice Chairman of the Cook County Commission on Social Innovation. We'll be taking questions from our listening audience as well as from you in the chat room at about the 30-minute mark. I want to remind you that the call-in number is 347-884-8121. And those of you who are in the chat room, feel free to post questions and comments. Okay, so, Mark, when we think about, again, uh, rail transportation, you know, it's come to our attention that in order to pay for increased service on the main metro electric line in Hyde Park, um, primarily, Metra has proposed cutting off peak service on the South Chicago and Blue Island branches of Metra Electric. First of all, I, I know that our commission has a problem with this. I want to 
have you explained to our listening audience why this is a problem and have you shared an update on the work that the commission is doing to address the situation? I'll be delighted to, Valerie, and thanks for raising this very important issue. Um, in May, I believe it was the 24th, uh, Metro proposed service changes on the Metro Electric that include reductions in the span of service on both the uh, South Chicago and Blue Island branches by four hours and three hours and 54 minutes, respectively, on weekdays and four hours and, and four hours and 17 hours and 20 minutes, respectively, on Saturdays, eliminating, altogether eliminating, late evening trains on both branches and eliminating all weekend service uh, on the Blue Island branch. So the, what the wow. commission, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a, a source of, of deep concern. So the commission at its September meeting will be entertaining a resolution to urge the county board to call on Metro to analyze equity and discriminatory impact of potential Metro Electric service changes on high-need communities on the far south side and south suburbs in a formal study and share with the public before any action is taken on uh, service changes. So uh, the, the idea would be that uh, the county commissioners would urge the leadership of the relevant departments of the city of Chicago, including the Department of Transportation, and the leadership of the RTA, the Regional Transportation Authority, and its three service boards, Metro Rail, Chicago Transit Authority, and PACE, to coordinate schedules, integrate services, implement fair transferability, and increase the frequency of service, upgrade Metro Electric stations where needed. The whole goal is for Metro Electric Line to become the foundation for the economic revitalization of the Metro Electric service area. So um, this is a resolution that is broadly supported by the Commission. I anticipate that it will be passed. I expect it to be mm -hmm. passed unanimously at the September meeting and uh, we will go forward and uh, ensure that the county board gets this in its hands without delay and hopefully takes action uh, in, in, in the immediate future. And, you know, along those lines, you know, we just talked about the fact that 500000 was allocated for, you know, a study. Is this an issue that might be rolled into the feasibility study? Since uh, yeah, I could imagine it. Yeah, the yeah, right. Well, the board has already acted on the earlier recommendation and acted mm -hmm. unanimously, and I'm sure that the board will respond favorably to this resolution as mm -hmm. well. Uh, it is mm -hmm. no less important. Uh, whether right. that's accomplished in expanding the scope of the study that's already been authorized, uh, which mm -hmm. is probably a practical and efficient way to get this job done, or whether for some reason it gets targeted to a different group uh, to undertake this study, uh, the important thing is that the results of both studies will now be integrated, looked at cohesively, mm -hmm. and strategically. So it's important, I think, that the uh, commission uh, continue to reinforce its commitment to fair transportation for everybody within the county mm -hmm. so they can get not only to jobs but doctor's appointments or other important uh, destinations without the challenges they're currently facing, let alone those that are contemplated. Yeah, and I, I think the feasibility study is really, you know, a good opportunity to look at those issues. I, I know when we were looking at existing conditions in North Lawndale for a comprehensive community plan, uh, we found that, you know, contrary to what policy would dictate, you know, where they were cutting the pink lines and, a, a num you know, a number of stops on the pink line, the blue line, and bus service in North Lawndale, you know, um, I guess I don't want to say urban legend, but, you know, forgive me, I'm a cynic, so I don't want to get, get you in trouble for, for being a, a cynic. But, but the reason given for cutting back those lines was, you know, we didn't utilize public transportation in North Lawndale. But once we looked at the data that was uncovered during the, you know, existing condition study, which will be, you know, the groundwork for the comprehensive plan, we found that, in fact, per capita, the folks, 
you know, who used the pink line on the west side and the blue line on the west side, you know, North Lawndale and East and West Garfield, we typically utilize it more per capita than other parts of the city. So I, I think that, you know, would be a, a really interesting, um, it would be really interesting to see what happens. I, I know we shared those data back in December showing that there were disparities in, you know, what the decisions were on the policy level versus what the data was saying. And I wouldn't be surprised if we find some of that, you know, once they do this feasibility study, you know, for Cook County. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you entirely. And I, I think, you know, there is, a, you know, a, a, an ethical obligation and a legal obligation to ensure that transportation is readily made available to all of the residents of the county, wherever they may be. And beyond that, I would couple it with a, very effective education programs so that those residents now understand what those opportunities are, how those lines could be used, how it benefits mm-hmm. their lives. I mean, you know, we have to we have to approach this. It seems to me, in a in a systematic way, and uh, cr- mm-hmm. create real va- availability of public transportation services, and then ensure that people know that it's there and how it works. Yes, yes, yes. So another exciting thing is, you know, under the leadership of Cook County Commissioner Jesus Chuy Garcia, as well as yourself, Cook County is doing something that no other county in in the country is doing, to the best of my knowledge. Um, They're actually amending the procurement rules so that they can create greater opportunities for social enterprises, and that includes nonprofits, and this will allow for greater opportunity to actually compete for county business. So can you provide an update on that work? Yeah, I'm thrilled to do that. I think this is a really important initiative, and as you indicated, this is a first in the nation uh, for Cook County, and I've always thought that the commission's mission includes thought leadership. So to the extent that we Mm -hmm. can step up and do something that others haven't yet done, let them see what we're doing and hopefully uh, introduce similar opportunities within their locality. So I think this is going to have a significant positive leverage as well as what it does for the people in Cook County. But uh, to be specific about what this is, in the, in the uh, July meeting of the commission, uh, the commission recommended to the county board, having consulted with the county's uh, procurement office, uh, that um, a social enterprise ordinance be adopted, and I was privileged to draft that ordinance. And uh, it provides for procurement incentives for Illinois benefit corporations, for Illinois low-profit limited liability companies, and other for-profit and non-profit bidders that have adopted earned revenue strategies that directly address social needs by providing products or services to disadvantaged people, providing employment to disadvantaged people, or both. And let me now, when we talk about disadvantaged people, let me kind of identify what that universe includes for purposes of this ordinance. So, again, it would mm-hmm. be providing products or services to these folks or hiring them or both, these folks mm-hmm. being individuals who are mentally, physically economically or educationally disadvantaged, including but not limited Mm to individuals who are living below the poverty line, developmentally disabled, mentally ill, people with uh, arrest or conviction records, substance abusers, recovering substance abusers, elderly and in need of hospice care, former gang members, or public benefits recipients. So these are the people who need a helping hand, and often these are the people who mm-hmm. need a second chance. So to the extent we have a nonprofit, a for-profit, by whatever label, and we're agnostic as to mm-hmm. form, we want to ensure that those entities that are serving those populations get a little bit of an edge in uh, when considering uh, bids uh, that the county is entertaining. And so we're expecting the county board to adopt the ordinance at its September meeting. Uh, and the idea would be to thereby promote the growth and development of social enterprises as a, an important means of addressing the social needs of the residents of the county. So I'm very excited about this. There is a uh, 
social enterprise procurement ordinance in Los Angeles County, uh, where they have revamped its procurement ordinance top to bottom. But in that particular case, uh, every nonprofit is considered a social enterprise. Uh, green businesses are considered a social enterprise. Um, it seems to me that if you're talking about a social enterprise, you must have an earned revenue strategy. That is, nonprofits mm-hmm. who have established businesses to diversify their sources of revenue, and those businesses themselves now become an instrumentality of mission, or a business that's pursuing a market-driven strategy to address a social problem, business by definition generating revenue. Mm-hmm. So we're a lot. We're encouraging those kinds of entities to become increasingly self-sufficient, increasingly self-reliant, less dependent on government contracts, less dependent on uh, government grants, less dependent on philanthropy. Because guess mm-hmm. what? Those sources of funding are finite. And to the extent we can empower the social sector, to the extent we can empower the investment community and the business community to help us address these social problems, it seems to me we're making them be better stewards of the resources entrusted to them, Mm -hmm. and they're going to be more effective and more impactful. So I think our definition of social enterprise is the right one, and we're the only ones to have adopted that definition, and I'm very excited about the possibilities here. Okay. Yeah, that is really great. And and me, I guess with with my background, having grown up in North Lawndale, um, there are a number of I, I guess programs for I guess new entrepreneurs. But I think also coupled with that, we don't always have the technical assistance that that's necessary, so that we have the capacity to really capitalize on those opportunities. You know, have you heard of any talk of any capacity building such that when this ordinance is finally, you know, in effect, that social enterprises actually get exposure to, I guess, the technical assistance that they need to, to compete? Well, th- thanks for asking that because it allows me to talk about two different initiatives. One is, uh, <laughs> okay. thanks, Valerie, terrific. Um, one is the um, commission has, in fact, uh, launched in concert with Social Enterprise Alliance uh, a series of capacity-building workshops, um, and we'll continue to do so in the coming year. Uh, these are all over the county. We did one in North Lawndale. We did one in Southeast Chicago. We did one in Markham. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea was to educate nonprofit managers about the opportunities of earned revenue, ways in which they could look at their organization's uh, core competencies and underutilized assets to create a business that, in fact, drives mission. And these have been very well received, and I know that from this point forward, we will be including the procurement opportunity within that mix. Second thing is, once the county acts on uh, the procurement ordinance, which I anticipate to occur in September, uh, Social Enterprise Alliance is planning an educational forum uh, to educate uh, those stakeholders who are interested in learning about this opportunity about how it works and how they can become a part mm-hmm. of it. So, yes, this will, be, this will be on our radar in lots of different ways, and I think it's an important uh, competitive distinction that the county will now uh, be able to afford social enterprises uh, that other government units and other uh, other counties and other states won't. So let's take advantage of that and build that <laughs> Uh, build that opportunity and and flex that muscle. Yes, yes, yes. And when you talked about that, I could remember, you know, what is his name? Jared Boucher? Is is that his name? I might be mispronouncing. I might be butchering his name. He talked about social enterprises and the various structures that nonprofits could adopt in order to actually engage in social enterprise. They should actually be more focused, you know, less on grants and more so um, structuring their businesses closer to a for-profit business. And hold on, I. It seems as if we have lost Mark um, temporarily. Looks like we might have lost the connection 
with Mark. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to turn on, um, I'm going to ask a caller uh, for a comment. Uh, hello, caller, you're at 630-450-1993. And Mark, if you're in the listening audience, can you please um, try calling 347-88? Hello. Hi, Valerie. This is Shelby. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, 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 good. Yeah. Uh, Mark oh, will I, rejoin I, us. I think he lost um, connection okay. for a bit. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, I was uh, listening. It was, I think it was some very interesting points being raised there. Um, you know, I was, when I was at Sunshine, that's one of the things that uh, was very prevalent in terms of, like, how can nonprofit organizations start generating revenue uh, using their current assets? And uh, even some of our funders started asking those questions. And it's like, as we started looking to give money, uh, out to other individuals, uh, to these organizations. We also want to look at, you know, your own sustainability model. And so mm-hmm. um, yeah, at Sunshine, we were looking at ways of generating revenue using our assets, which were the entrepreneurs we had there. And these entrepreneurs actually have products and services to sell. So we were developing concepts around how can we get uh, – like sample boxes of our entrepreneurs and sell them not only to donors, but also to sell uh, these sample boxes to uh, people in our network and also to promote entrepreneurs supporting each other by then having them purchase some of these boxes uh, on a subscription basis. So uh, as I looked at it, even with it, looking at uh, just very conservative revenue projections, it was very conceivable to see that we could bring in an extra fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year just by partner with the assets that being our clients and then uh, mm-hmm. promoting their businesses but at the same time uh, and giving them an outlet to market and sell their products but at the same time giving sunshine an opportunity to raise uh, funding and capital mm-hmm. to continue on their programs so yeah I think that concept is has been very prevalent, and it would behoove most nonprofit leaders to start thinking about how they can bring in revenue models to support the organizations. And and, and you really think about it, there are a lot of nonprofits out there, a lot of people competing for dollars, and, um, and, and in a lot of cases, dollars are drying up. And so uh, how mm-hmm. does one create a sustainability model for their organization? And I think uh, revenue generation has to be one of them. Now, have you found that um, your typical investors have been, have they been receptive, or do they kind of look cross-eyed at nonprofits? Um, I'd say they've been very receptive. Part of it, when you think about it, um, if I am donating, say, even if I'm donating money to a nonprofit organization, uh, I rather, and we've seen this in a lot of cases where a donor will rather like purchase something and, like, get something of value, and a portion of that uh-huh. proceeds uh, would actually go to support the organization because actually now they're getting – it's easier to justify spending money on something of value as opposed to just giving money for the sake of giving money. And you also see that uh-huh. with um, um, organizations, like if you're asking a larger donor to, like, invest in, in some of your projects. And uh, the Green Line Coffee Shop is a great example of that where people mm-hmm. actually, uh, investors invested and said we'd rather invest these dollars in, instead of, like, donating these dollars because there is a possibility of a return on investment. If it, mm-hmm. if it just n- doesn't work and they never see anything, they've all, you know, in terms of return, there is a social return on that investment, uh, not necessarily a monetary return. And in most cases, people who invest like that, the amounts are small enough where, they don't really look for it. They're not really looking for a return. A return would be something nice. But the fact mm-hmm. that if you put something together, it becomes mildly, moderately successful, and you've employed people, you brought a new business to an underserved community, that alone is a great return. Now, if you can get a couple of dollars every year from it, that's even better. But I think the social investing part is more about doing good 
in the communities mm-hmm. as opposed to really thinking about what dollar amount you're going to get back. Okay. Awesome, awesome. I'm going to take another call from area code 773-624-0585. We're still trying to to get Mark back, and I'm going to see if he has any comments on what he's heard so far as we um, continue to wait for Mark. Okay, caller at 624-0585, did you have any questions or comments? Okay, um, apparently there are no questions or comments. Um, we are waiting for our guest, Mark J. Lane. He is the Vice Chair of the Cook County Commission on Social Innovation to rejoin us. So apparently he lost connection. Um, Mark, if you can hear us, please give us a call at area code Three four seven eight eight four eight one two one. Again, that number is three four seven eight one two one. We were very much so interested in you know all the work that you do with the commission and you know the lessons learned. So again, if you can hear us, please give us a call at three four seven eight eight four eight one two one. Okay, Shelby, did you have any um, comments, any further comments while, you know, while um, we're waiting? Sure. I, I was listening to more about the transportation uh, side, and mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point that was being raised and that, you know, living in Naperville, I, 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 I drive past these large warehouses, these large, you know, light manufacturing places, and they have help wanted signs all over the place. And I mm-hmm. drive into an office every day where the unemployment rate is 25% in the community, you know, uh, and, and even higher if, if you start counting just African-American males between that certain the age of 18 and 831 or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't know the exact number, but I, am, I do know that the unemployment rate can range up to 50% for many groups living inside the city of Chicago. And so the question has always been, it's like, there are jobs and there are people looking for jobs. And how do you connect those two? Because, uh, and it goes further than, I know Mark was talking about just Cook County and just the areas of opportunity in Cook County. But when you start looking at, like, how do you then expand out? Because you have so many opportunities. Amazon is building new warehouses out in Will County Mm -hmm. and fulfillment centers. And so how do you even take the talent and the workforce that you have in the city and create opportunities for them where they can go out to even outside of Cook County to other counties, earn money, and then bring that money back into Cook County to spend. So uh, to me, it's not even just about, and I know you have to start somewhere, but, you know, Mm -hmm. that initiative gets spread out all over the Chicagoland area. And the most important part is to be able to provide transportation. And that's an area where we Mm -hmm. see it's really lacking. It's like, how do you get to these places? Even if you can get on a train and get there, it's like, how do you get to the job after the train? And the trains don't run all the time and the schedules are not there. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes, you know, it becomes a logistical nightmare trying to get someone from the city where there's a high unemployment rate to even like, you know, the suburban Cook County and then even some of the collar counties. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would hope that as they think about developing that transportation infrastructure or that transportation plan to think even further uh, where you have more opportunities even outside of Cook County that are just totally being unmet, that, if, you know, people mm-hmm. walk in and fill out an application, they will get hired on the spot. But they just don't have an they don't have a way to conveniently get to to work because they would need mm-hmm. certainly need reliable transportation and you know that's that's tough so um but yeah, I think it's a good start, and I was uh, very happy to hear that uh, initiatives like that are being created okay now question for you you live in what aurora that that's a 
what county? Naperville. Aurora, forgive me. <laughs> well, Naperville. No, I, uh, I say I'm in Will County. It's part of it's in DuPage okay. County. The other part is in Will County. Okay. So the south end is okay. in Will, north end in DuPage. Yeah. Okay. So, do you guys have similar issues? I mean, I I always think of Naperville as not having low income people. Um, but but you you're laughing, but you know that that's just my perception. I I could be totally wrong. But do you guys have some of the similar issues? You know, if you want to do a reverse commute, say from Naperville or Aurora, and you know in those outlying areas, is that a concern, or do people for the most part have access to transportation? Well, so the the transportation system is designed for the commute into the city as opposed to the commute mm-hmm. from the city in the morning mm-hmm. out to the area. So the, okay. the, the metro, the regional transportation system, is, is very efficient where you have bus, buses that pick people up anywhere from north end to the south end at various locations. It could be a church parking lot. It could be a library mm-hmm. parking lot. But just all over the region, there are buses that run only during rush hour, and they pick people up and take them to the train station. The train station has uh, enormous amount of parking, and we have express trains that take you into this almost every 15 minutes to take you into the city, and it takes 30 minutes to go 30 miles, which is, like, unheard of. You can't do that on the expressway. And uh, same thing when the evening rush comes. It's coming from out of the city back out there. So now you have, once again, this very extensive transportation system that has been designed around people who live in Naperville or Aurora and these surrounding communities. They commute into the city in the morning. They do their jobs, and they come back out uh, in the evening. And uh, basically between 2.30 and 6.30, you can get an express train. And they and mm-hmm. during rush hour they run very frequently, and so um, and it's, it's once again it's a very extensive system that's been set up, and it and works really well. So you know you have to look at it and say if we're going to do that for people who live in the city, that similar type of reverse commute system has to be set up. It's like how do you get out there, mm-hmm. and are there pockets of like manufacturing and and uh, warehousing and, and fulfillment opportunities that if we can get someone into an area, uh, like they get off the train, get onto a bus, and that bus takes them to those areas, and then in the evening time, those buses come back, pick them up, and mm-hmm. make sure they get to the train stations, but also having uh, a sufficient number of trains running at frequent enough where the people aren't stranded waiting at an hour hour and a half for the next train mm-hmm. because then it just it kind of defeats the purpose of, of people coming out to work because they start feeling mm-hmm. they spend too much time just doing the commute. And I think that's the tough part. So if you're like doing the reverse commute going into the city, you know the mm-hmm. system is set up so well that within an hour from leaving your house, you could be downtown and you can't do that driving. And so that becomes, <laughs> right. like a, you know, true. right? So it becomes, because it could be an hour and a half to two hours, depending on what day it is. Mm-hmm. So that becomes a very uh, good transportation option for people. And mm-hmm. so, and it's reliable enough where people can can count on it. And it, even if the trains are late, they have someone standing outside mm-hmm. the train station with uh, notes to your boss saying the train was delayed. So it, <laughs> that's what I said. The system has been well thought out. Of and well executed, and uh, okay. there's no reason why systems like that can't be set up to get people who are unemployed in, the, in say, Chicago, Cook County, and getting mm-hmm. them out to the uh, not only suburban Cook County but the collar counties, so they can uh, take advantage of employment opportunities. And in a lot of instances, um, these jobs pay more than uh, say jobs in the city. So because mm-hmm. there's a shortage and you tend to get the salaries tend to be a much, much higher. Okay. Now, now I'm going to play devil's this, advocate. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, go ahead. Um, we'll finish oh, your I thought and then I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay. So, so, and I was going to say one of the downsides, though, it's like 
the minimum wage <laughs> in Will County is not <laughs> as high as it is in Cook County. So, you, you know, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that you have to be, you know, be wary of is that, like, there are some positions, and usually it's not the warehouse positions, but there are some positions that pay uh, minimum wage, and a minimum wage is not going to be as high as, as it is in Cook County or Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess my question is, you know, when I think about the need to actually develop the infrastructure to do what it is that you're proposing, what's what's the incentive for an investor to, to actually invest in this infrastructure if these jobs are, you know, typically, you know, not high-paying jobs? Are, are, are well, there opportunities well, for that. return? Well, here's what I say, like those opportunities, those jobs are higher paying. And so when you mm-hmm. really look at like the Amazon Fulfillment Center, a lot of the warehouses, okay. these jobs actually do pay more than minimum wage. Uh, you know, what I was saying okay. is that some, sometimes it's like if you look at it, it used to be the fast food restaurants in the suburban communities would pay more than those in the city. And now it's, that mm-hmm. part has changed because the city has a higher minimum wage than like a lot of the suburban communities. So I wouldn't take the commute for a, uh, you know, a fast food job. But certainly when you start looking at warehouse, light manufacturing, logistics, these, uh, these opportunities do pay more. They're usually in the area, uh, there are a lot of the jobs that pay 15 to $16 an hour. And, um, and I don't think, I don't, the minimum wage in Chicago is now, what, 10 and a quarter or $11 or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so... Um, so one certainly would have to weigh the cost of transportation into that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think overall part of it is like either you're, you're employed or you're not employed. So you're earning money, you're not earning money. Uh, and mm-hmm. that, so, you know, those are kind of the things that as, as the plan is getting developed, you have to make it attractive to all parties, including the people who are working, because it has to be right. worth their while to even want to do the commute. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know what? It's 2.46. I'm not sure if Mark is going to make it back. Perhaps he had an emergency, and um, I don't want to talk your ear off, <laughs> um, Shelby, but you, you definitely you raised some interesting points, and I, I know you had a specific question of Mark um, once he got back, and we didn't get a chance to go into that um Part and you know, and I don't want to, you know, steal you know Mark's thunder. You know, perhaps we can have him come back, and you know, share some of his insights on manufacturing. And, and I know that that's a spot that's near and dear to your heart as well. So, I'll yeah, just yeah, put certainly. That on. <laughs> yeah, I'll put yeah, that on hold for now. Yeah, because that was one of the now. questions I wanted to ask him, uh, because you really think about it. You know, one thing is you can start. Uh, exporting your labor out to other places outside the city, but you could also just mm-hmm. keep your labor there and, and build opportunities inside the, inside the city or inside the county to bring more manufacturing opportunities or, or the, you know, fulfillment opportunities right there in the city. Uh, we have so many vacant lots, so many empty buildings that, you know, it would be a shame to say that. Like, and I think a part of it is as you start looking at investors, Investors like investing mm-hmm. in stuff, you know, stuff that's being made. Right. And so, right. you know, when you can, because those things are tangible, right? So let's, if we right. invest in the manufacture of widgets and, and, you know, there's a demand for widgets, I can make money off of that. You know, I can get a return on investment and, uh, and building communities at the same time. So um, I would certainly love to see uh, initiatives that also encourage the investment inside the communities because once again there then you eliminate some of that those long commutes and i think that's the part mm-hmm. that really turns people off and it just it takes a special type of person to want to deal with the long commute uh every mm-hmm. day um to go to a job uh no matter what the job is and um and usually those jobs that are not paying as much they have a tendency to have a higher turnover rate because people uh, they feel that they're spending a lot of time and money on the commute. So so we definitely have to figure out a way to work around those issues. But certainly mm-hmm. I feel that the 
most bang for the buck is creating opportunities right where they live. Yes, yes, yes. So I guess that brings us to other considerations too, you know, like education, you know, the curriculum that we have in our schools. You know, there's been so much of a focus on college prep, and historically we've never had a majority of people going to college. You know, we our economy has been built, you know, so much on labor, right? And, but now we're going mm-hmm. to a service industry and and there's a need for, you know, people to really have some hard, marketable skills. So I, mm-hmm. I guess as we think about the manufacturing, we also need to think about our education system, you know, so that we're preparing people to, to take those jobs. Or or is it that the jobs you're speaking of, we might not necessarily need all of that knowledge of logistics and manufacturing? Well. I, I think some of those, a lot of these jobs are entry-level jobs, uh, but part mm-hmm. of it is you need that in order to gain, like, work skills and those those soft skills required. How do you get along with people? How do you navigate the workforce? So you think about it, if we have people, uh, individuals who are unemployed and they're not been employed, you know, they're 25-year-olds and never had a job, you know, they they're still remedial skills they need just to be able to function on a job. Uh, and I, I don't think people really think about those things. It's like, you know, you have to understand that you need to get up every morning and be on time, you know, and be early. Right, right, and right. that, you know, you can't take attitudes to the office. You know, you have to understand that you're the employee and you you report to a supervisor or a boss. And, you know, how do you interact and handle those situations, those communications? You also have to work with other people and learn to get along with them. You can't stay on your phone and surf Facebook all day. You know, it's, it's some of the <laughs> things that people think are just, these are obvious things to people who have jobs, but people who have never worked, you, you won't, you know, it's, you won't believe it how much they don't know. And it's, I think people mm-hmm. assume that they do know. So it's not always as simple as just giving someone a job, but it's also giving someone the skills to be able to become successful, you know, mm-hmm. in an entry-level job. So then they can start acquiring those skills to make to move up. And because some of these, there are a shortage of uh, skilled workers in some manufacturing positions because they re- do require a higher level of knowledge. It's not something that you would learn in college, but it is something that you need to go to some specialty type of training to do. And so to start then picking those people who are very successful in the entry level and then moving them up to these higher level manufacturing positions where it may be more computer based and you know, and more technology-based, you know, that's, mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of training that, that uh, will have to go into there. So so it's really developing people in, in a stepwise fashion where they can work their way up into being good employees on every level and, you know, having the mm-hmm. skill and the knowledge to be able to navigate those systems. You made excellent points. And, you know, and before we close out, you know, I always like to remind people that, um, and, and this is totally off topic, this this is a commercial for, for you know, one of the projects that I'm working on, but um, I just want to let folks know about an upcoming compliance challenge for nonprofits. You know, in my practice, which is working with nonprofits, helping them to build capacity, helping start them and run them and all that good stuff, um, it always seems that all roads lead back to nonprofit compliance. In fact, over 40% of Chicago organizations have lost their tax-exempt status between 2010 and now. And, you know, that's a little bit higher than the country, but it's not that far from being consistent with what we see across the country. So I am hosting the 30-Day Compliance Challenge, and that's a series of four webinars to show nonprofit leaders how to maintain their tax-exempt status and what to do if they lose it. And the goal is to work with these organizations to bring them current on 30 days of completing the series. So if there's anyone in our listening audience who might want to find out more about this 30-Day Compliance Challenge, you can 
email me at consulting at com for further information. I'm sorry about that. I, I just had to, to get my little two cents in. Nothing wrong with a shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to you. Why I gotta be shameless? Right. Okay. All right. That's what I, was, I say to people. I do it all the time. It's like any, you know, when you when you're in business, you know, it's like you have to. Every time you get an opportunity, you have to you have to promote your business. So there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yes, 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 and we'll have to have you back on in about six months. You were just on our show, what, about two weeks ago? Was it one week ago? Two? Yeah, last just, week. Just, just last, last week. week, yeah. It seems so so much longer than that, but um, we were just talking about um, the work that you do as an entrepreneur as well as coaching entrepreneurs and I'm sure with the new developments that you'll be encountering over the next you know, three to six months, you'll have a whole heck of a lot to share with us again. So I'm Certainly. really looking forward to to your coming back. And, again, it seems as if Mark may have had an issue where he could not get back with us. I, I know he would have otherwise. Um, so we've got about five minutes left, and I'm going to leave it to you to close us out. If you've got any closing comments about what you've heard today, um, you know, some information you think our listening audience needs to know, you know, if it's not concerning you directly, if there's other information that you think um, folks in nonprofit or economic development or small business development might be interested in, please, please share that now. Well, I guess the only thing I would say is I was listening and just um, certainly not trying to steal Mark's thunder, but uh, he brought up just so many great points and just kind of following up on some of the points that he he talked about. I know you had uh, brought up the question about technical assistance for these organizations uh, who are embarking on these social enterprises. And I, I really think that part of a successful program is to to get – a lot of these organizations in a room and pick their brains about, you know, what they need and, and, you know, how they can help, but also how they can collaborate with each other. I think one of the Mm -hmm. biggest issues that we have is that everybody, most nonprofit organizations like to operate like they're on an island. And uh, (laughs) and it it just seems like it's tough to collaborate like that and to grow like that. Uh, And I think some Mm -hmm. of it's like, you know, we don't want anyone stealing our funding and, because funding is so tight and we don't want to take credit for what we do because we have to report that to the funders. Mm-hmm. But I think they should be more visionary and, and think about how uh, they're all in the same game together with the same mission, and that's to help small businesses or help the people who they help. And so coming together and figuring out uh, a master plan that you mm-hmm. can then work with the city, state, or county governments to help implement those, those plans, I think um, I think most many nonprofits would be a lot more successful under that model than the current model of let's just find our little fiefdom, work in it, and try to grow it as much mm-hmm. as we can. Um, and uh, I think as we see more uh, collaboration between nonprofits and sharing best practices and, and really truly working together, not just you know meeting every three months and saying we're working together but coming up with, like, uh, more global strategic plans that include mm-hmm. other nonprofit organizations. Uh, and, and you think about it, if they develop social enterprises, then they can also start purchasing from each other and creating more cooperatives. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we don't see a lot of that now. And to start implementing some of that I think would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and listening to you talk, I thought about the collective impact model where – each organization, you know, is doing his his or her part, its own part, mm-hmm. so to speak, mm-hmm. and there's no duplication. And if you do this thing right, you're actually creating scale, you know, whereas each of those organizations may impact 50, maybe 60. You know, if they mm-hmm. create synergy, the two organizations can actually, you know, address the needs of 200 people instead of, you know, 100 you know, 50 plus 50, you know, working alone in their silos. And, and again, I, I think, you know, we're so 
so busy trying to watch our own turf that we don't really Mm -hmm. necessarily think about it quite that way. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, Shelby, I I thank you so much. I I know that Mark would have loved to have finished this conversation. I, I know that he, you know, he obviously had to run and could not get back. I thank you so much for listening. I thank you for contributing, and I thank every member of our listening audience who called in, every member of our audience who has participated through chat, you know, or or listened. Um, you're you're very very much valued, and I thank you so much for joining us. So I'm going to sign off right about now. It's three o'clock Central Standard Time, and I. Yeah, look forward to talking to you each next week. All right? Take care, Shelby. All right. You too, Allie. Bye-bye. All right. Okay, bye-bye.